Welcome to episode five of About Your Mother. In this two-part series, you will meet New York Times bestselling author of Dog Medicine, Julie Barton. A writer and teacher, Julie is real with a capital R and a seeker of truth with a capital T. Dog Medicine is about Julie's lifelong battle with depression, explores an intricate family dynamic, and how adopting her dog, Bunker, saved her from herself. I have read Julie's book twice, and I can't express enough how masterful it is. She brings into grasp the power of depression, but also how important animals are to our personal and emotional well-being. To begin, I'll read an excerpt to give you context to our conversation that follows. Dog medicine. I pushed the button to unlock the building's front door. Then I undid all four locks, my eyes barely opened. I knew that this moment was a turning point. When I let my mother in, I was going to give up and go back to Ohio. I would leave behind any hope of reuniting with Will, the man I thought I needed. I would give up on life in New York. I might even give up on living. On April 17, 1996, the second day of Bunker's life and my second day on the floor, there was a partial solar eclipse. The moon passed between the sun and the earth, obscuring the light. Though only visible from the deepest reaches of the Southern hemisphere, the moon, always my ally, was blocking the sun, allowing for darkness. No light for me, no light for Bunker, whose eyes were not yet open. Like round pegs sliding into round holes, darkness was our meeting place, our psychic gathering spot. We didn't know it, but we were at that dark moment when the moon slid over the sun, beginning the long and difficult rest that would precede our union and the light. Here's my interview with Julie Barton. Julie, welcome to About Your Mother. I'm so honored to have you, one of my writing heroes. Oh, so, so excited. Thanks for having me. Thanks for um, having me. You're so sweet. Oh, you're welcome. Since About Your Mother, where your story begins, launches with a reflection on our mothers, I thought after reading Dog Medicine twice that it would be great to start the conversation with a memory of your mom that helped shape the book because there's so much of your relationship with your family in there. What would be a memory of your mom that inspired some of your writing of dog medicine? Well, I mean, there are so many. The first one that comes to mind is probably the, just her coming to get me in New York. But, you know, I was, before we got on the call, I was thinking about how much when we are just out of college or just sort of launching in life, how much if they're around, we need our moms. And, and I remember that I had a spiral notebook that I started um, letters to my mom in, and I would send the notebook itself back and forth to each other. And we would put it in an envelope and ship it. And then she would write a letter and ship the whole thing back to me. And I still have it. And it was very much this sort of like, I need you mom kind of thing. But like, we couldn't quite say, I couldn't quite say that on the phone, but she always replied. And it was often just like, you know, today I mowed the lawn and, you know, I walked the dog and dad and I are talking about this, this, and this. And that's definitely a, a memory that, that journal that I kept with her, that was sort of a long distance journal. And then also with my mom memories, most, you know, vivid from my childhood include her being out in the yard and gardening and being covered in dirt from head to toe 
running from a huge beehive that she dug into accidentally underground, um, killing a snake with a hoe. <laughs> like we oh. had all kinds, we had, a, we had three acres and they were always out there working in the garden. And, you know, she had these white pants that were like her painting gardening pants. And she would just put those on. And I knew like she was going out to like dig in the dirt. And I think it was very much her favorite thing to do and still is. Well, that's one of the things that really touches me in this book is that when you are having your moment in New York and things are not going well and you're falling apart, you call your mom. What was the process for you? When did you get the idea and when did you decide to run with this experience of digging into your past and writing a memoir Mm -hmm. of this magnitude? Well, it didn't come early. You know, I mean, I have a master's in fiction writing and I was not a memoirist. I was I did not know what CNF was, which means creative nonfiction, which is memoir. I didn't know what that was when I started grad school. And there are people like, oh, I'm here for CNF. And I'd be like, mm-hmm. like what's that mean? Um, and I just thought, oh, well, I could never do that. I could never really write what was real or what was true. And so I wrote a novel. It's called Dogleg Women. And it was not my story, but it was very loosely based on what I was you know, experiencing, which most novels are, but it was, you know, it was just sort of a loosely veiled attempt to tell my story. I wanted to sort of share it. And in it, the girl starts, you move to Seattle. Mm-hmm. It's a similar sort of thing. It was my story, but veiled in this other woman's story. And I wrote it kind of all, all along knowing this was going to be a good practice book, you know, but I didn't think, I never thought, well, I'm going to actually write the truth of it. So for, you know, Bunker died in 2007 and the day he died, um, you know, they say when you lose someone, if you listen, you'll hear things from them. The day after he died, I found out that I was a finalist in this fiction contest, but I had never won a thing or been at all recognized for anything. Yeah. And I got that email and I looked it up and I just, it was the day after I'd lost him. I just heard him say, tell our story, tell, tell our story. And I was, I remember like thinking like, I'll try. I will, I try. And then it took me another eight years to actually really sit down and do it um, or even start it. And then it took me another eight years to really write it. Um, so it just, it was a very long process. And then in the process of writing this book, if you're going to write a memoir and it's about your family, you're going to have to talk to your family. (laughs) You know, most of the time you're going to, unless you're so estranged that they wouldn't, I mean, even then you really do have to um, talk to them. And so I was like, okay, well, if I'm going to do this, I have to do it and I have to dig in and I have to ask these questions that I've been avoiding for my entire life. And I have to face the fact that what happened in my house was, unusual that, you know, there was sibling violence that was extreme, even though at the time I didn't think it was because I just thought that was how things were. Right. Um, so I had to talk to my brother and then I had to talk to my parents and I had to say, you know, why didn't you do anything? And my parents are very different and they would, they've heard me that talk ad nauseum about them publicly and bless their hearts. They're never like annoyed with me or maybe they just don't listen, but which is fine too. (laughs) Totally fine. They're very different. You know, my dad is like, 
he's a workaholic, so he's never home, but when he is home, he's great. And he's a communicator and he wants to understand and he wants to dig and he wants to really understand the truth and know how I am. We're similar in that way. And then my mom is just, um, what should we do for dinner? How are you? Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. You're good. Okay. You're good. I can see you're crying. You want to, do you want to go outside? You might feel better if you go outside. You know, she's very surfacey. Yeah. But not in a malicious way, just in a like, it does not compute way. Mm-hmm. It does not compute to her how to handle me when I'm upset. And as a kid, we used to butt heads big time because she did not understand what my problem was, why I was having issues. Um, and so I had to go home and talk to them about that and just say, this wasn't great. Yeah. This is what happened. And I don't know if you guys really know, like, they're like, yeah, we kind of know, but some of it they didn't know. And those were tough conversations. Oh, I bet. And I'm, I invited my brother to be there for some of the ones where I was planning to say to them, like, dad, you weren't home enough. Yeah. And mom, you put your head in the sand. And I said, you know, it might be good for both of us. I said this to my brother, if, if we both go to talk to them. And he said, no, I don't, I don't want to come, but just tell dad that I don't ever have a memory of him throwing a ball with me. Uh, and so I said that to my dad and, and my dad was like, I really, I don't think that's true or whatever. And in fact, later on, I found home videos of them at the park throwing balls. So much video of it, but it's this metaphoric thing, right? I think for my brother, he didn't yeah. feel like his dad was the kind of dad who could be like, hey, son, let's go out in the yard. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, And absolutely. so, yeah, so I think... Um, so I ended up doing that conversation on my own and um, it was intense, but it was, I needed it, you know, I needed it. And my parents very much to their credit. Um, my dad especially was like, I want to hear everything. Mm. I want to hear everything. Tell me everything I did wrong. <laughs> um, and my mom at some points was like, no, this is enough. It's enough. It's enough. And my dad would say, nope, let her talk. Um, so it was all very hard and cathartic and, beautiful. Um, but that was the process of trying to write the book, really yeah. just trying to like make sense of it. And also to give myself permission to say, to write what happened with the rear view mirror, the lens of like, this was not okay. Right. You know, that I was being chased in my house with knives that I was running to my room and getting, you know, my head pinned to the wall or that, you know, I was being constantly berated by the person who lived in the room next to mine. Yeah. You know, and, and, and that just getting to that point took a long time. I bet. Where I felt yeah. like that was a problem. And it's so fascinating because we choose our memories and we've always talked about how slow, because I know people want to hear from you about the process, that it's such a slow process, especially when you're writing about your family, because often, you know, everybody's selecting the memories that they want and you're having to come together where you each walked away with a different experience. And do you think in some parts that it was helpful, certainly you embarked on it as a personal journey to write about your family. Do you think it helped heal some broken parts in your family for everybody? It may have, it may have helped my brother. I don't know if it helped my parents or not. They may have thought they did a way better job than they did. (laughs) I think we all hope to, right? (laughs) I know, of course we do, of course. I mean, I'm sure my kids are gonna have things they have grievances with us just part of parenting but you know I do think that if anything they could see that for me 
I needed to unburden myself. Mm. And that was a healing that I needed. And because we're a family unit, that was helpful for them. And they needed to understand what my perspective was. And I don't think that for whatever reason in my family, you know, the boy was born first and, and I had a very sort of patriarchal family lineage, right? Where the boy, the boy is good and the man is the one who has the say so and all these things. And so for me to be a second born and be a girl, it was kind of like, oh yeah, you know, oh yeah, you. And that was what I felt like. And that's probably not how my parents felt. Um, but I always just felt like invisible as well as um, like I was the only one in my house who was actually having feelings, like big feelings, you know, and, and I was told so often, like, don't be so sensitive. You know, your brother said one rude thing to you. Why are you so sensitive? Why do you let it get to you so much? And I just remember thinking like, oh yeah, okay. I must be really broken in this way that I can't just brush it off or ignore it, you know? Yeah. But he, it, this was, this was my world. These were the people who were going to rise, raise me up or knock me down. And they were, one of them in particular was regularly knocking me down. One of them was absent. And one of them was pretending like she was Mary Poppins and everything was fine. <laughs> and I was like, what is happening? You know? Yeah. Um, so it, I think, I think for me, it was like, I needed to finally be able to say like, this was not okay for me. This yeah. is not okay for me, the way that things were. And it wasn't because I was too sensitive or weird or whatever, or broken or depressed or any of that. It was because this was just not okay. Yeah. Just you know? not normal. Not okay. Mm. Um, and then Bunker comes along and in many ways seems like gives you your voice, you know, mm. to talk about that. I mean, it's almost like you mm. grew out of this painful experience with him by your side. Absolutely. Beautiful. Absolutely. I did. And, you know, I think too, there's this, this funny dichotomy with, with Bunker because my mom, who is somebody who like me, like wants her house to be tidy and pretty and nice and not messed up was like, yes, we're going to get you a puppy. Let's go. Because she knew how deeply I needed something to sort of help me and connect with you know, she was the one who took me out and said, let's find him. And having him in my life was, you know, that was the first morning of my life where I woke up and I didn't feel dread sitting on my chest, like a big, huge weight. And I thought, what, (laughs) what, like, this is how it can feel to wake up. Like you don't have to wake up and feel like, Oh God, not another day. Um, and that, I will never forget, it was lying in my childhood bedroom that, that morning, the morning, that first morning he woke up next to me and I, I just was so blown away by what I had never noticed was actually always there because mm-hmm. this was the first morning it was gone, that feeling. And I, and, and there was probably a sort of alchemy of things that happened because I had started taking antidepressants a couple of weeks earlier. So they probably kicked in right around the time he came along. And this was this beautiful morning where I was out at sunrise for the first time in a year laughing and watching this goofball puppy roll around in the yard and chew grass, 
you know, and that was where I had a choice really in that next couple of weeks where I was sort of learning to be with him and learning to train him and communicate with him and learning that he actually, it was a reciprocal relationship and he saw me learning to trust that we were on this really deep spiritual connected level Yeah, that I don't know if it was divined or if it, if I curated it or if it was just luck or what, but it was absolutely like that from a couple of weeks into having him where he just, we were so connected and it was the beginning of my healing really. And I, without my mom saying, here's the newspaper, let's circle these breeders that have puppies available and I will call them and I will drive you out there and I will pay for this dog and I'm going to get, and I'm going to pop it in your lap and you know, she was the one who did that, which, you know, in the process of writing this book, I realized that one of the most heartbreaking and beautiful things about family is that in my family in particular is that they've failed me and they saved me, Mm -hmm. right? They failed me so much in so many ways as a little girl. And then they saved my life when I needed them. Mm -hmm. And so it's this thing of like, how could you do that? And oh my God, thank you. You know, and it's, it, that's family, right? That's family right there. There's just this, like, we're all trying our very best and we fail each other because there's so many things going on. And then when we need, need, you know, hopefully when we need them the most, they're right there. And so for me, it was very confusing because I didn't want to be ungrateful. I wanted them to, you know, I wanted to know them to know that I was very grateful for how they had helped me when I was most suffering, but I also needed to address what had happened. Yeah. And that's what I think you do so beautifully is the contradiction in the book of the failing and the saving that your mom, when she got out the pad of paper, when she had bunker and you did the pro con list, such a mom thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) I loved it. Totally. had a big smile on my face. I'm like, oh, I would do that with my son. Um, Mm -hmm. And that here she, you know, she rescued you, brought your home. And then she's doing a list where she's going to send you away to Seattle, which opens so many doors in your life. Right. So beautiful. So, so beautiful. One question I have for you, the spiritual connection that you have with um, Bunker is so eminent. When did you make the moon connection? Was that when you had him or when you were writing the book? But it's such it was, a beautiful layer. It was, none of it was when I had him. Yeah. And in fact, I have all those dates written down. And then it was when it, it was the most amazing thing because I was writing the book. And then I was like, wow, I wonder what the moon was on the day he was born. And I'd look and I'd be like, oh my God, wait, what was the moon this day? And it was all just this perfect metaphor that I was like, thank you universe. And it, I didn't notice as along, all as, as it was going along, you know, I didn't notice what the, what phase the moon was in, but my mom had always said when I went, when I was in college and I went abroad and we were really far from each other, she would always say, look at the moon. I'm under the same moon. Yeah. Right. And so that was the beginning of that. And she still, every month she emails me and all the grandkids, what the full moon is and tomorrow is the full moon and tomorrow is also my birthday. So I'm like, this oh, is going to be a good year. Really? <laughs> Thanks. But yeah, you know, she, there, she, every, she's, she's the one who's really started that, that yeah. connection. And I think, I think she may have known that she was doing it, but I, I also think me writing it and recognizing it in the book gave her more. Like mm. Now she's all about it. She's all about it. She's is all she? About it. It's the harvest moon, guys. It's the strawberry moon, you know. It's the wolf moon. 
She's owning it. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I think, yeah, the, uh, recognizing that, you know, they failed me and they saved me is really the path to acceptance, right, of your family because you don't get to pick them. Yes. <laughs> they yeah. come at you. And I think we all in our middle age are doing that work. And I think yeah. that's why your well, book is so important. Yeah. And I, th- I think it's important to also to acknowledge that not everybody has a family that does the second thing that saves them. Right. Not everybody has that. Some people have families that just flat out fail them. Mm -hmm. And then you have to figure out a way to find people who are going to help you or help to self save yourself. Um, You know, I have so many friends who are writers who are writing stories where there was no mom swing and, you know, driving nine hours, throwing furniture on the sidewalk. You know, there was nobody doing that for them. Yeah. Um, In fact, they were doing things that were making it harder. Mm. So, you know, I, I do acknowledge how blessed I was to have that, you know, because it wasn't perfect, but they did their best. And that's sort of, I think, the story of a lot of families. Yeah. So your Cinderella publishing story, can we talk about that? So Bunker, (laughs) because I love it. Um, But Bunker speaks to you and says, write about us. And then mm-hmm. you do all the work, the years of work, and it's years. As, mm-hmm. And then what happens with your manuscript? Yeah, well, so, you know, I have friends who have published and become New York Times bestsellers and my grad school friends. I'm like, wow, this is really, that's so cool for them. I'm happy for them. And they gave me some advice. And so they said, start to find an agent. And I sent my manuscript out, or at least, you know, a proposal in the first part of it out to about 10 agents. This was gosh, it was probably 2013 or 14, the MO them, and I don't know how it is now, but the way they, most often it would say on their website, if you don't hear back from us, it's a no. Mm-hmm. So you basically are just tossing it into the ether and you'll never know. So you just assume it's a no because you're never, but then I would hear back from some people who would say, you know, one person said, this is, this is not for me. That was it. No, hello, Julie. Thank you for your. It was just this is not for me. Send. Years of work, not for me. <laughs> yeah, this is not for me. And then I got another one that said this would be a really good book if it was about a pit bull, but it's about a golden retriever, and they're so loving and friendly that there's not much of a story here. I got another piece of feedback where somebody requested the whole manuscript and then said, after four months, and finally I was like, hello, and they wrote back and said, oh, sorry, I thought it would be more about the dog and less about you. And so I was just like, this is really frustrating. And it was probably, I probably let it sit for another couple months and just shared with friends how frustrated I was. And then I had a friend who, one of those people I shared with, who said, you know, my friend is starting this really small mental health imprint, like book publisher, but he's like done two books so far. And I think they sold maybe 300 copies and but he really believes in artists trying to tell stories about mental wellness. And you might, you might just want to chat with him and he might have advice for you and stuff like that. And so I did. And I talked to him and I was like, Oh, he sounds pretty cool. And he said, well, you know, I would be artist friendly. I would be the one, you know, I would, you could design the cover, you could design, you could have every last say about the, how it would be written and whatever. I'm not going to ask you to change anything. And I was like, Oh, okay, maybe. And then I was sort of like, okay, well, you know, he, he published a book by Janet Burroway, who was one of my people I admired in my learning to write process. And so then I said, well, okay, fine, let's, let's do it. Let's go along. He gave me like 
couple thousand dollars as an advance with his, his personal money. This was his love child, this sort of this this publishing company that he wanted to make. I worked with him and he we worked every day together for almost a year. And he we had a designer and we had, you know, a, a, a distributor, a little tiny one. And it was a really lovely process. It was he had a copy editor and we worked, we all worked together and we just, you know, made this beautiful book. And I got to decide what the cover looked like and everything. And it was a really lovely process. So then we published it. The day it comes out, it's sold out online. He's he bought he's ordered 2,000 copies, which was very ambitious for him because his last couple books had only sold a couple hundred copies. Yeah. And it sold out online and it wasn't going to be available for two more weeks. And I was like, oh my God, Uh this is terrible. This is terrible. (laughs) People want my book and they can't get it. And I remember crying in my friend's bathroom being like, I don't know what I'm doing. I picked the wrong person, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And then he, we went on this self-funded tour and while we were on the tour, I got a phone call. I was on this like little radio show from, I don't even know how I got connected with this person, but I was on the radio show. And I got a phone call from New York and I was like, that's weird. My friend who had one of the best-selling books had sent it to her agent after she read it and said, you have to look at this. She had called me before it was published with a small press and said, "This I could do something with this. And I said, well, I'm already working with this other guy. So no thanks. So I got another call from her while we were on the tour and I called her back from the Starbucks at the bottom of this building in Portland, Oregon. And I, <laughs> I was like, hi, this is Julia. I saw you called. And she said, what would you do if I told you I had an offer from Penguin to buy your oh. book? And I was like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> I would say, uh, I don't know. And so then I had to figure out how to get the rights from the small press to the big press. I also had to figure out a way to make it be an he and I were together moving it over to this big press instead of I was dumping him Yeah. because what ended up happening, he had to give me, he had to sell the rights back to me or give the rights back to me. I ended up giving him some of the advance, half of the advance. I think I ended up giving him a small amount of royalties and that was fine with me because I was like, he helped me get through the process of getting this book into the world. And it wouldn't have happened without him. And I needed somebody who was going to be kind and gentle and encouraging. And he would just send me these emails that were pep talks. And 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 then I moved to the big publishing house and they yeah. sent me on a 14 city tour around the country. It was then published into nine languages. It's all over the world. Oh. Um, it became a New York Times bestseller. Uh, and, and then I got to see the difference between working with a small press and working with a huge press where I'm just a tiny little book for them. I was not a big deal, you know, for them to like, Oh yeah, let's just do this in paperback. It'll be fun. And I'm like, wow, you can't do me a paperback. <laughs> There's a penguin on my cover. I can't believe it. You know? And then they called and said, we just want to call and tell you that the New York times bestseller list came out and you're on it. You're number oh, three in the animals list or whatever. And and so it was cool. this call from the, all these people, all these executives at Penguin. And it was really, really just like amazing. And then, and then it also was sort of like, hmm, okay, it felt just as good to do it with the small press. It felt really good to be recognized um, in a way that sort of was, was wide and to have the distribution, to have it be like at airports and at Target and at Barnes and Nobles, where before it would be lucky if it was, you know, at your local bookstore, you kind of had to hand pedal it. Yeah. 
but both both approaches have their have their upsides and downsides. And um, I'm glad I got to experience both. And um, I feel really grateful that you know Adam, who runs the small press, was generous enough to give it back to me because a lot of small presses, when they have this kind of thing happen, say no, this is our golden egg. Right. We're not going to give for that. Why would we do that? And yeah. he was like go forth. <laughs> yeah. He's like, you know, this is, a, yeah, it sounds so pure. A question for yeah. you on that. When you met up with him and you worked on it with him and a copywriter for a year, you said, how much did the book change? I had worked so hard on the book for so long and really read it and reread it over and over and over and over again, so many times and worked on it and workshopped it with so many people. I don't actually think he had any changes Yeah, because I had worked on it for so long. I think the copy, the copy editor was probably like, girl, you don't know your commas, but, (laughs) (laughs) but I'm still working on that one. But, you know, I think he didn't have any, he didn't have any major changes. I mean, I, I can't remember if he had any sort of, this needs to be clear or anything. He probably did, but I don't, I don't remember enough. The only thing I remember him saying when we were designing the cover, one of his whiskers, you'll see one of his whiskers, I think on the right or something, has drool on it. And he was like, should we edit out the drool? <laughs> it does. <laughs> and couple I was, drops. <laughs> yeah, a couple drops. And I was like, huh, no, we're not yeah, editing out the drool. And he's like, okay, fine. You know? Um, so that was the only thing I can remember that he, a suggestion that he made, but he really was true to his word that he's like, I, this is me being... He was like my shepherd. He was like, mm. I'm just going to help you put this out into the world. In the long run, he ended up doing pretty well with it, you know, and and I think it was just because I needed somebody by my side who was going to say, we're doing this because we want to put this book out in the world. And that was another thing that I told myself as I was writing, when I started to feel the pressures of agents and publishing and yeah. was this idea that there's one person and it's a young girl out there who needs this book? And she's why I'm doing this. And so if I publish it with a small press and it gets into her hands, I'm done. Mm-hmm. I've done my job. There's one, per- like, and that was just the sort of singular for me to imagine that one person who needed it, who was going to be like, she was going to see herself in it. And, you know, not that I was going to save anybody or help anybody, but just that she would see, read it and think, oh my gosh, I, I recognize this feeling. Yeah that was like that's my goal and so once I was able to set that goal then it was much easier to not put all that other pressure on myself and just to focus on making the story as good as I can and writing it as clearly and as you know working on the structure which was a big part of it you know how to how to tell it in a way that was you know not just my regular born life like all those details that make it emotional and fulfilling Julie's success with her memoir is truly a Cinderella story. Yet, as you can tell from our conversation, her success is deserved because not only is she soulful and brave, she ensured the story of Julie and Bunker represented her best work. In our next episode, Julie talks more about her writing process, her next book, and what it is like to achieve success as an author.